right, well, thanks for braving some of what's left from the storm to be here with us today, whether you're hanging out here in the room uh, or joining us online. It's great to be with you this weekend. I, I do want to say a special thank you, and I know he does not do this yet, thanks, but I want to say thank you to Steve. Steve, you came in yesterday, and he cleaned off the sidewalks, and he put salt out and all that stuff. So thank you, Steve, for doing that. Can we give a round of applause? It'd be great. I was I was watching the cameras and, like, gauging when do I have to go in, and then I checked once, and it was all gone. And I was like, where'd it happen? And Steve texted me. I was like, that's awesome. So thank you, Steve, for doing that for us uh, so we could be here today. My name's Corey, and I get the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. And over the course of the year, we've been in a pretty cool spot. I'm, I'm kind of excited. You know, Pastor Andrew was up here earlier after we heard the video from Adam, and he said, you know, God is doing cool things. And I am firmly confident that God is doing cool things in, in and through our church and our community, um, and we're excited to be a part of that. And so we've been having conversation over the course of the year, the first part of this year, that w- who we are as GFC, right? What are the things that are important to us? What are the things that we're committed to? What are the things that we're asking all of us to do as a part of this church family? And so if you missed any of those weeks, we would love for you to go back and check that out. You can go on YouTube and watch it. You can go um, stream our podcast, and you can listen to it as you drive if you want. But we're taking kind of a second step into this idea of of what is church. And so we thought about, first of all, over the first four weeks, who we are, right? What are the things that we're committed to? And now we're going to switch gears a little bit, but stay in this idea of what is church and what do we do with that and what does that look like? And so we're stepping into the book of Revelation. Now, sometimes we say that and we have different views or thoughts about what goes on in Revelation, right? And so sometimes we we hear that and we think, oh, there's lots of things I don't understand, right? Or lots of things that are going to happen, but they haven't happened yet. Or some of us, if you're like me, um, you think through the lens, unfortunately, of the Left Behind series, okay? So like that's something that, not necessarily that they're bad, but just like that's not biblical, so I have to get out of that mind frame, but... I read the teen books, and so, like, what happened? Okay, well, there was this guy. Like, I just think through that lens, because then they made movies, right, and all this kind of stuff. And so we have to kind of think through and see what does Revelation have for us that's not necessarily written by somebody else, but it's written by God and given to us and inspired by God. And so at the very beginning of Revelation, it's actually written to seven specific churches. And so there's the number seven gets very important very quickly um, in this time frame. And so there's actually seven churches that we're going to talk about. So over the next few weeks, we're going to, or the next seven weeks, really, we're going to talk about each different church that is represented. There are seven stars that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And then there are seven lampstands. And seven is the number of completion in Scripture, okay? So it's like a perfect number, and so you see this show up um, a good amount of time in Scripture. There's certain numbers that just kind of circulate around, and they come back around again. And so this is where we come to uh, in the very beginning of Revelation. And so I want to start today in chapter 1, and then we'll work in our way in to chapter 2. And again, if you want to follow along with us, you can go to our website, mygracefamily.church. You can... Go to the follow along tab and find all the verses, find all the notes, or if you'd like to just open your phone or your Bible and follow along as well, you can. So in Revelation chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. And I want to kind of set the scene, have us understand what's going on here. This is John, the writer of Revelation. By the way, I had a teacher in high school that was very particular. You would lose points if you wrote Revelations. 
There's no S on the end of Revelation. So John is writing this, and he gets to see Jesus again. He hasn't seen Jesus this way in a long time, since Jesus went up into heaven. And so when John sees him, it says he fell at his feet as though he were dead. Why? He knew Jesus, but why would he do this? Well, now he was seeing Jesus in his heavenly glory, not just as a physical human. This is the first time he really saw this again. And so he falls at his, on, on his face, and Jesus reaches down and says, don't be afraid. This is very, very cool. He reaches out and just says, hey, it's okay, right? You know me. You know who I am. You don't have to be afraid of me. He says, I, I, he says, I died, but look, I'm still alive. I'm still around. And I, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in the grave. This is, this is a coming together of two old friends. They haven't seen each other in a while. And so we go into verses 19 and 20. He says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars. You saw in my right hand in the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So we get this representation of angels and lampstands. Okay, so let's walk through this again, right? We have seven churches that we're going to talk about. And these are actual churches existing at the time that John wrote Revelation. So again, sometimes when we think about Revelation, we think this, is, this didn't happen yet. This is way out here somewhere. It's not the case, right? When John is writing this, these seven churches existed. And Revelation was written about 95 AD, okay? So if you think about it chronologically, Jesus is born somewhere like 80, 0 to 4 to 7, somewhere somewhere in that range, okay? So he's around for 33 years. That bumps us ahead to about 80, 40. Let's just round a little bit. And then you go to 95. So you're, you're looking at 50 to 60 years between when Jesus went to heaven he ascended, the church was founded, and then Revelation was written, okay? So you're within one lifetime. That's why John could could have been an apostle of Jesus and then also wrote this letter. And so these churches had about 50-ish years, 60-ish years to kind of be established and exist. So some of these churches existed for a couple of decades already. These aren't churches that have only started. I mean, they're relatively new, but they still have been around for a couple of decades. And so we get these letters written to them because they had seen already ebbs and flows and who they are and how they've interacted with scripture and who they've been. And actually I have a map that we can throw up here so that you can kind of see exactly where they are. So you can see all the stars. Those are the seven churches that we're going to talk about. You can see the Aegean Sea and the Mediterranean Sea down at the bottom. So if you were to go kind of to like your left, if we went that way, Greece is on that side. And then if you go all the way over there, it's Italy. And then like to the right here, just a little bit is modern day Turkey. And so some of these places you can actually go to and see and find ruins of these actual places uh, that we see in Scripture. So we've got seven churches that are already existing, and so Jesus is going to speak into the life of these churches. We've got seven stars, right? We, Jesus just talked about that. And these seven stars represent angels or messengers that were designated to help the churches. So what Jesus says is, John, you're going to write to the messenger, you're going to write to the angel, and there's going to be an interaction there. What, what does that mean? And there's some, there's some question whether this was actually angels, like being interacting with the churches, not in, in uh, a way where we think the angels were like showing up to them or anything, but did they have some sort of accountability with them? There's some question as to whether this was just a messenger that 
that John was supposed to send this message to and they would carry it to the church. There's some connection there that we're not 100% sure of. But here's the thing that we want to recognize from that is that when we talk about ourselves, like a lot of times in church, and I do this too, we talk about our personal relationship with Jesus, right? And that's absolutely true. He is our personal savior. He is someone that we want to have a relationship with and we want to pray to, read about, study, spend time with, all of those things. The same is true for a church family and a church body. And so when Jesus looks at churches, there's a relationship that Jesus has not just with a person or people, but with the church, the body that has gathered together. Jesus has an interaction there, and he cares about that group. And so he says that we're going to send a message to them so that they can understand. And these seven stars, these angels or messengers, are going to carry that message to the church. And then there's this idea of a lampstand, right? We talked about that. And so each church has a lampstand to be what? To be the light of the world. That's the idea that this represents. So Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we get the opportunity to reflect Jesus to other people, to be hope, to to love them like Jesus would love them. And so when a church comes together and says, we're going to do this together as a body of believers, we get the opportunity then to be that light in a place that is stuck in darkness or a light in a place that needs to know that light and to know Jesus at the same time. So we get the idea or get the opportunity to be that lamp. And so he says there's seven churches we're going to talk about. There's the seven stars and then there's seven lampstands that are representative of these churches. So church number one is going to be the church of Ephesus. By the way, this is the same Ephesus that the book of Ephesians was written to. Okay, so if you want to do a little extra homework this week and you want to study, read the book of Ephesians. You're talking about the same church, and you can kind of see what Paul had to say, what Jesus says, and how this all kind of comes together. So let's go to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, and this is what it says. Write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Verses 2 and 3. I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. Verse 4. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Verse 5. Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, you will come to, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Verse 6. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. In verse 7. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in paradise, in the paradise of God. So we get seven verses written specifically to this church in Ephesus, and our job today is to say, what can we learn from this letter that was written to the church in Ephesus, and how do we apply it to us? Now, it's very important, right, when we do stuff like this, sometimes when we look in Scripture, and we see someone told to do something, or, or a command given to somebody, or information given to somebody, it's not always true to go one for one and go, okay, well, if somebody, if Moses was told to do this, I'm supposed to do this, Right? We have to be very careful when we do that. But what we're going to try and do is look at truth principles that we can pull out of the scripture and say they transfer through time and space and how we believe Jesus would want us to exist and what we can learn from the church in Ephesus and what he 
teaches to them. So I think that there's actually four lessons that we can learn from the from the church of Ephesus. And the cool thing that I think Jesus does, if you were paying attention, as we were reading through those seven verses, he does the compliment sandwich. You ever see that? So like if you're going to give feedback to somebody, one of the things you're supposed to do is say something good. They do first, right? Then you give the thing that they can work on, and then you go back to something good. Jesus kind of does that. And it's kind of cool. So we're going to, I'm going to show you these four things that we can learn uh, from this letter to Ephesus. So first thing is this, know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, in verses two and three of chapter two, uh, it says this, I know all the things you do. I have seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. This is important, okay? Remember our timeline. John's writing this. He was an apostle of Jesus. There would have been other people that could have been around that would have interacted with the church in Ephesus that would have made claims about who they were in relationship to Jesus. So what does that mean? We, th- there wasn't a way to do background checks on people, right? You couldn't just like type somebody's name in and try and find them on whitepages.com and be like, did they really know Jesus? Something like that, right? You had to talk to people. You had to figure out, were they around? What did they know? What did they define as who Jesus is? I know other apostles. What do they say about Jesus? And so they had to go through this process of figuring out, are these people really who they say they are? And one of the things Jesus says they were really good at doing was figuring out who was an apostle of Jesus or a follower of Jesus or not. Did they actually reflect who Jesus was? Did they hold the same values that Jesus held? Did they interact with people the way that Jesus would want people interacted with? And so what's very important that we can learn from this is that we need to also, as a church and as an individual, is that our definition of, of a Jesus follower must match his. There's a lot of people... But like current day, past, and future, well, this will happen, that claim the name of Jesus. That will say, oh, I'm a Christian, or I know Jesus, or I love Jesus, or um, you guys remember like a long time ago, there was like Jesus was my homeboy t-shirts. I don't know if I just remember that, but I remember that existing, right? So there was those types of things. So people will claim the name of Jesus when it's advantageous. One of the things that we need to be able to do is to say, not just not judge people, that's not the point, right? To, but to be able to have conversation with people and go, is this really truly the Jesus, are they representing Jesus the way Jesus is supposed to be represented? Do they really truly have this relationship with Jesus? And we have to be able to decipher between the two and figure this out. And one of the things that I think is very important is to understand that there is no in-between, There is not the opportunity for us to simply say, Jesus, I know Jesus, but I don't live like Jesus has called me to live. There there can't be an in-between there. There, Those two things have to be put together. I know I've I've talked about this a little bit recently, and I I just want to go back to it, because I think it's a good way for us to understand this and kind of see it, right? A lot of people will say, I love Jesus, I don't like the church, right? That's just, it's happening, and I get why those things are said. But here's the problem, right? When we look in Scripture, we, we see that Jesus doesn't say that himself. Jesus says, I'm married to the church. I'm not leaving it. I'm not forsaking it. It is my way of doing ministry when I'm not here. And so there's that connection, right? There's no in-between. We can't separate Jesus over here and go, we want to live this way because this way is the way that we feel more comfortable. And so one of the deep things that we have to be able to get into is, are we stuck in that in-between? 
Or do have we actually said, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, and then my life is going to reflect that? And the same is true when we interact with others. Lovingly being able to have that conversation and somebody says, oh, I'm a follower of him, and, and lovingly being able to, if we don't think so, or we're questioning that, having that conversation and being able to say, if you are a follower of Jesus, this is what should be true. And being able to look at Scripture and understand what that means. And so the first thing that we can learn is that we need to know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And I would say if, if someone's here or listening online or you're driving and listening to podcasts one day, right, please have the conversation. Like if you're sitting here listening to me and go, I don't know that if somebody walked up to me and said, how do I know I'm a follower of Jesus? You don't know the next words that are going to come out of your mouth. Like let's have that conversation. Let's, let's dig into that and say, how do I walk somebody through that, right? Especially those of us who maybe have kids, and one of our kids one day is going to come to us and say, what does it mean to be saved? Or what does it mean to follow Jesus? Or what does it mean to have a relationship with him? We want to know what to say there. We want to be able to lead them lovingly into that relationship with him. And so being able to define that and knowing who Jesus is is very important. The second thing I think we can learn from the Church of Ephesus is that we don't want to lose sight of love. Right? We're getting close to Valentine's Day. Don't lose sight of love. I'm just kidding. I'm not that mushy. But... There's something that Jesus says in here that's, that's very important. In verse 4 of Revelation 2, he says this, But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Verse 5, Look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Now this is, this is very important, right? Number one, he says, you guys are really good at knowing the information. You're really good at being able to figure out whether somebody is a follower of Jesus or not. You can check the boxes, you can get the right info, and you can name that person pretty well. But he goes, the love side of stuff, being able to love well, being able to engage well, treating people, loving Jesus, loving those around us as best we can. He goes, that's where you struggle. And here's the interesting thing, right? It's important enough to Jesus that he says, if you don't get this right, I'm going to come and remove the lampstand. That should tell us something about where the importance lies for Jesus in how we interact with other people. Are there times to point out truth? 100%. Are there times where we have to speak difficult truth? 100%. But he says, you should do that in a way that is loving. And one of the things that we get the opportunity to do, and one of the things that makes this so difficult at times, right, is because knowing the information and being able to just keep things cut and dry and do this, don't do that, is a little bit easier than difficult situations where you have to love people. One of the things that uh, happened this week, Pastor Andrew and I were having a conversation about just something that is going on in the life of our church, and we sat and we had to say, what is the best way to love this person? It wasn't so cut and dry. It wasn't so like we, like we were like, we know what we believe about X, Y, Z. We know what Jesus teaches. We know what, where we stand on this topic. But interacting with someone who believes something differently than us and loving them well is much more nuanced. And so we get to dig into that and say, how do I love well? How do I love the way that Jesus would want me to live? And I think what's very important is that Jesus, as he talks about this, I think it's clear that Jesus isn't interested in infatuation. What, what happens when you're infatuated with something? Right? You get really excited about it, 
You get really into it, whether it's a hobby or a sport or a relationship or something like that, right? And you're all about it for a certain amount of time. And then what? One day you're like, eh, not for me, right? Maybe you've had this happen in your life. You got really into something. Or maybe you've had this happen with your kids or, you know, with a sibling or something like that. And it was like all about it. And you start to pour all this time into it. And then all of a sudden one day it's just like, I'm just not interested anymore, that's rough. And it can be rough when you're on the other side of that relationship, right? When somebody else says, I'm not interested anymore. There's that infatuation. It's good for a while. And then it fizzles out and goes away. And what Jesus is talking about, he says, you don't love me and the church the way that you did at first. That, that initial like endorphin hit where it was so exciting and it was great and it was awesome and you were into it. Because you don't love me like that anymore. I'm not about infatuation, right? This isn't a this isn't a one time and then walk away. This is a love that's got to endure. It's got to be something that we continue through. It's got to be something that's true for us over a long period of time. And here's what I think is true: you or I choose to love the things we love most. We choose to love the things we choose to love the things we love most. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're married. At least I'll speak for our marriage, and my wife's not in the room, but I think she would be. Tr- this would be true of her too. There are days where you just don't want to do what's loving, like the desire for it. Like you know, you should. You know what's right. You know what you what Jesus would want you to do, right? But it's like that in that moment. Like what I want to do is not what's loving, and so w- when we look at that, we go, okay, but I choose to because this is a person that I truly. Love. Let me give a much simpler and more silly example. If you are a Philadelphia sports fan, you choose to love them because they always let us down, right? There is no like sticking in when everything like you just it's bad. It turns it turns bad. And so when we when we really love something, we're gonna choose to to love it, to be attached to it, to identify to it, or to a person, even when that's difficult. And so Jesus says, You we've got this has to continue. You should love me and you should love other people the same way you did when it was exciting and fun and new. And that love, that passion, should carry through all the way. And if it doesn't, when we start to realize that we're not loving anymore, we're just concerned about checking the boxes and knowing the information, that's, that's a problem. And that's not the way that I have called the church to live. So we, we need to know what it means to be a Jesus follower. We also need to not lose sight of love and loving Jesus and loving other people. Number three is this, that we would be able to recognize false teaching. He goes into verse six. He says, but this is in your favor, right? We get to the other side of the compliment sandwich. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Now the thing, like if you're like me, you see the word hate in scripture, you're like, whoa, they're going to say we, they hate somebody. That's not true. Look at what he says specifically. You hate the evil deeds of them, right? It's not, we talk about love, you love the person, but you can be not for what they do, right? We don't get a lot of information about this group of people. In fact, they're not found many other places in Scripture. We don't get a list of this is exactly what they believe. There's some question about who they were and what they believe. But what we know is true based on this information and the little bit of information we have outside of this is that what they was that what they were teaching was false. And so they would come along and they would teach something or they would have views or they would want to go a certain direction. And Jesus says, this is good, this is in your favor, because again, you're good at defining what's true and what's not. And so we again, as a church family, as individuals, we get bombarded with a lot of information from a lot of different angles. And particularly when it comes to 
spiritual matters, Christianity, pastors, right? We need to be able to decipher and differentiate what is true and what is not. And this should be happening here as well, right? When you hear me teach something, if you read it or you have other conversations or you have other readings that you've done and studying and you think something that I say is not true, you should have a conversation with me about it. Like, please be looking in scripture. If it's not true, please come and have a conversation. It wouldn't be the first time. Now, I promise I've never taught anything from stage that I thought was wrong on purpose. Have I made mistakes? Absolutely. And so someone came to me, this is a mistake. We have that conversation. And then I came the next time I had, it was actually in a conversation with somebody else. And I went to that person. I said, I was wrong about this. In fact, somebody helped me understand. And we rearranged that, right? So this should happen in our context. It should also happen as we just decipher what goes on in the world around us. And so when we see teaching, especially from people that claim to have some attachment with Jesus or some attachment to Christianity, we have to be sure that what they're saying is true. And it lines up with Scripture. And the importance of that is for our own lives, that we're not led astray, right? But that also we have to understand there are people outside of Christianity watching. And sometimes what other people teach gives them the wrong information about who Jesus was or what he believes. And so it's good when we have interaction with that and we can say, you know what? It's actually not true. It's not what Jesus teaches. And I can bring you scripture and show you where it's different and show them what really is true. And so one of the things that we would say here is that the Bible is our final authority, but we would also say this, if it isn't supported by scripture, we don't endorse it. It doesn't mean that everything we talk about is in, or every cultural topic is in scripture, right? There's certain things that just aren't there. But we need to be able to come back and say the stance we have on something is going to be supported by Scripture. We can't just make it up on our own. We can't just decide this feels better or this seems better or this is where we're going to go. Like I have to be able to look at Scripture and know that it's true or know that at least that I have a biblical perspective. And so we want to be able to identify false teaching and point it out. Um, I don't want to go too far into this, but there was, a, there was a time where this happened this week, where there was a pastor who stood up and taught something, and it was completely false. And I saw it bounce around different places, and I posted something on my story about it, and just it's just frustrating. And we need to be able to point out those times and know, like when we see stuff like that, let's make sure that we know the difference and that we can make sure that we don't allow that to be taught. The fourth thing, the final thing that we can learn is that endurance is rewarded. This is really cool. So in verse 7... He says this, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And this is really cool because he goes all the way back to, right, Garden of Eden idea. He says, if you you do endure through this, like if if this is something that you do, there's a reward at the end. Now, let's be really clear, right? You decide to follow Jesus. You're in the book of life not changing, but there is, if that's true of you, right, there's a life change that happens. And so Jesus gets into this idea and says, we got to keep getting better, right? There's that continual growth process. You're really good at this, but you got to work on that, right? So we keep going. He says, at the end of this, there's going to be a reward. This isn't just for nothing. One of the great things about our faith is that when we come to the end of our life, it's not for nothing. There's going to be a reward. And the cool thing is the connection that's made here is that just outside of Ephesus, I think it was about a mile from my research, there was a tree. 
And this tree held, held of great importance to them. In fact, some of the things that they find around of their like logos, like we have a state flag and stuff like that, like they would find this tree as an insignia of Ephesus. And so this tree that was outside of the city, there's a bunch of different things that people think about. But one of the things I found over and over again was that it was actually a place of asylum. And so if you got there, if you got within a certain range of this tree or entered the building or where, because it was kind of a building that was built around the tree. And so if you got there, the things that you had done wrong were forgiven. And so Jesus kind of paints this picture. And when these people in Ephesus would have heard this picture of a tree of life, they would have thought back in scripture, but they would have also thought of this tree where you get to go and all of the things that you've ever done wrong are just erased. And you're not held responsible for them anymore. So Jesus says your reward is going to be this reality, not just this tree on earth, right, that we see and you guys know, but that there's going to be a place when you pass away that you get to presence with Jesus and you're going to find that asylum as well. And so he gives them this bit of motivation as they continue to be the church. And so Jesus calls them to these things, right? And he made that statement about love. He said, if you don't do well to love, the lampstand is going to be removed. So he says, you've got some work to do. And I would say that we will continually, as GFC, have work to do, right? We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We need to continue to pursue God as well as we can. And so over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is is learn. Learn from these churches. See what Jesus says to them. And one of the things that I've heard that I keep in the back of my mind, I think it's important, is is this phrase. Discipline is the bridge from who we are to who we want to be. And so if there's a change or there's an adjustment or there's a growth that we want to make, we've, there's got to be discipline in that. There's got to be a decision in saying, I'm going to be this or I'm going to make this change. And so we've got to identify those things and say, I see where I'm at now. Just like Jesus says, I see where you're at now. There's a place I want you to go. There's a thing I want you to get to. And the same is true in our personal lives and in the life of our church as well. And so here's, here's just one question I want us to process as we walk away from this first conversation um, about the first church in Revelation. That question is this, do I choose to love Jesus even when I don't want to? Why that question? I think that question kind of encapsulates all the things that we talked about today. We can know what it means to follow Jesus, just like I can know what it means to love my wife. I can make the opposite decision. So do I... Love Jesus, choose to love Jesus even when I don't want to. When I have to love somebody else because I'm a follower of Jesus, do I make that decision and say I'm going to love them even though what's inside of me right now says I don't want to? Am I going to decipher false teaching or am I going to be in a space where I hear something and I go, you know, I'm not exactly sure where scripture falls on that, but I'm going to go with it because it feels better than some other difficult teachings I've heard, and so I'm going to choose that instead. Or do we choose to love Jesus by following the difficult truths even when we don't want to? And what Jesus says is if we continue on this progress, right? If we continue in love for him, love for other people, and, and we want to be person that Jesus calls us to be, then there's the reward that's coming. There's something that's there. And we'll get to see, too, the fruit in our own lives 
and the fruit as we interact with other people as well. We're excited to walk through these seven churches and to understand what we can from the early part of Revelation and to continue to set ourselves up here at the beginning of the year as a church family that wants to grow together, that wants to grow in our personal lives, challenge each other to grow, and then also see that fruit as we interact with those who aren't already a part of GFC. Would you pray with me today? God, we are so grateful that you give us information like this, and and we see letters uh, to other churches from thousands of years ago that we can also glean information from. We thank you for the truths that you so clearly communicate uh, through John and, and that we can take that information and we can put it into our own context. And we ask that we would be super clear what it means to be a follower of you, what your teachings mean, that we would be able to point out false teachings and not be led astray by them. We also ask that you would give us the strength and ability to love well, even when that's difficult. And we ask that our passion would be true. In, in Adam's video, there was a picture behind him that said, may I never lose the wonder. And we ask that that would be true of our relationship with you, that we would be so invested in our relationship with you that we can't help but fall in love with you more every day. And that that would be so evident to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.